Well, here we go. Let me ask you a question to begin. Where was this picture taken? Yeah, right out there in the foyer, right? Uh, whose feet are those? Nope, not Liz. Nope. 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 <laughs> Gonna be a rough morning, I'm telling you. <laughs> those are errands. Okay, so those are errands. Hmm. The question is, though, what is she stepping on? What is that? Okay, she's stepping on that logo out there, but what does the logo mean? Uh, If you're in doubt of what the logo means, the correct answer always at Southside is? Thank you. That is a picture of Jesus in all of his fullness. We call it in the Christian Missionary Alliance the fourfold gospel. Uh, Jesus as our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And each one of those emblems has significance. For more than 130 years, uh, this has been the mantra of the CNMA, of which we are a part. And we're kind of dissecting that piece by piece through this series to discover the fullness, the wholeness, the sufficiency of Jesus in every situation that life hands us. And whatever you're facing today, we believe that Jesus is the answer. And ultimately, in human existence, he is Lord of all. And so we are taking this, and the cross is a picture of Jesus as our Savior, the pitcher. Uh, he is our healer, a pitcher of oil there, the laver, our sanctifier, the crown. He is our coming king. And the globe is our mission to the ends of the earth. Now, three weeks ago, Pastor Michael shared with us that Christ is our Savior. But that means far more than a raised hand or a checked card or a moment at an altar or saying a sinner's prayer. It's far more than that. Far more than that. You see, our salvation begins when we decide to follow Jesus, when we understand what he has done for us, and it will conclude in what uh, theologians call the glorification, or when we become like him, when we are in his presence. So it begins when we start to follow Jesus, ends when we are with Jesus. But what happens in between those points while we're here on this earth? Now, most evangelicals agree that on the cross, Christ bore our sin. He offers us the incredible gifts of the forgiveness of our sin, right relationship with God, eternal life forever with him. But when you get a group of Christians together and start speaking about Christ as our sanctifier, there's a whole lot less agreement, a whole lot more fussing about the issue. Why, I'm not so sure, because I, from my perspective, Scripture's clear, but there's a variety of opinion out there, and I respect that. But you see, when we embrace Christ as our Savior, and I trust that you have, let me just pause here. If you need sermon notes, would you raise your hand? Because uh, some of the Scripture will be on the screen, some will not be, but for your future study, uh, I'd ask you to dig into this a little bit. So if you need, uh, Ann Burrell, I see your hand. Okay, that's good. Oh, wait, that's Jeff's hand. Okay, good. So just keep your hand up, and uh, let's see. Amy, do you need one? That one? Okay. Sharing together. I love it. Good. All right, everybody got one? So when we embrace Christ as our Savior, and I trust that you have done that, you have become a Jesus follower at some point in your life, 
we experience deliverance from the penalty of our sin. Jesus on the cross paid the price for the penalty of our sin. When we live for Jesus as our sanctifier, we are delivered from the power of sin. And we'll kind of unpackage this over the next few minutes. We are delivered from the power of sin. Christ liberates us. He has freed us from our sin so that sin no longer is our master. As Paul would write, you choose, I choose to sin. We don't have to, but we do it because we choose to. There's a big difference between a believer and an unbeliever. The unbeliever can't do anything but sin. The believer has a choice to make. And so we'll take a little bit deeper look at that. Salvation delivers us from eternal death. Sanctification brings us freedom to truly live here and now in this moment. So there's a vast difference between knowing Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as our sanctifier. Now we believe Jesus did in fact go to the cross. And because Jesus went to the cross, and if we acknowledge what he has done with that, if we give up our own lives to follow him, then the Bible calls us holy. The Bible calls us saints. Those are some very powerful words. And that's all because Jesus has done this for us. Yet uh, every one of us can relate to the failure that we have in our struggle against sin. The Bible would say each of us has a besetting sin. Uh, There is something in our lives that is a weak point, and the enemy keeps tapping right on that thing. You may have inherited that from your father or your father's father or other generations, but there's a weakness, there's a default that's a, a part of our lives that we struggle against this thing. There's a lack of spiritual power, there's little joy, there's little peace in what's supposed to be this fulfilling life with Jesus, if we're honest. We just don't seem to consistently feel or act or live like God sees us. God sees us as holy. We see ourselves a little bit different. So what's going on here? This is the reason we need Christ as our sanctifier. Okay? Just laying some groundwork here. So let's dive in. We need Christ as our sanctifier, our need for sanctification. Why do we need to be sanctified? Well... Because we got a little bit of a problem. We're all sinners. There's none good, no, not one. None of us. You are good, you are good, when there's nothing good in me, we just sang. That, in fact, is good Bible truth. So the Bible says that in sin, your mom conceived you. That doesn't mean she was having an affair at the time. That means she was transmitting to you, thanks, Mom, the sin nature right, that we all have, because ultimately we need to thank Adam for that. Thanks, Adam. Nice job. You too, Eve, by the way. Yes. And because of that, I'm just like you. I have a sin nature, and that is a part of human existence. We are all born separated from God. So with this sin nature uh, and our separation from God, we got a little bit of problem here. we got a little bit of problem. So religion says, work for your reward work for your salvation work for it (laughs) how's that working for you not too well but our need for sanctification is like this it's a command to be obeyed here's what peter said for the scriptures say you must be holy because i am holiness because i am holy in fact the right hebrews would say without holiness no one will see the lord same word holiness sanctification okay now 
God, through faith in Jesus, if you have come to that point, sees you as holy. How many of you are holy right now? Okay, you're wondering. How many of you are sitting next to a holy person? Oh, more hands. Isn't that interesting? Huh. Huh. But understand, this is a command. You must be holy because God is holy. In order to be with him, we must be like him. So you're telling me you're holy. Don't get ahead of me. Because I know you, most of you pretty well, and I know you're sinners. You're going to walk right out of here. You're even having thoughts right now that aren't so hot. Okay? Me too. (laughs) Right? It's a conflict to be one. B. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants, and the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. There's a war going on within every believer right now. It is continual. It is unceasing. It's a tough battle. It's a tough battle. The sin nature against the Spirit of God. And they're clashing, fighting for your soul right now. And understand, this is far more than having a little angel on this shoulder, a little devil on this shoulder. Do it, don't do it, don't want me. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about a very intense struggle for your soul. And it's going on between your sin nature, which you inherited from Adam, and the Spirit of God who has come into your life when you acknowledge Jesus. Wham! So every person's got this war going on within them. See, it's a commission to be fulfilled. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We need to do it God's way. It's not by might nor by power, by the Spirit, that anything is accomplished of eternal significance. So, we're getting started. So what does the word mean anyway? We better come to a common understanding of what the word sanctification means. One of these big church words, right? What does it mean? Well, in essence, both in Hebrew and in Greek, it means to separate or set apart. To be separate or set apart. That is, in essence, what the word holiness or sanctification means. To be different, to be set apart, to be separate. Now, in the Old Testament, all kinds of stuff was sanctified. The temple, the furniture, houses, fields, the Sabbath day, all of those were sanctified, according to Scripture, and people. They were set apart for God's intended purposes. And last week we talked about Christ as our healer, and we looked at the fact that in the book of Leviticus and others, we got all of these uh, health and hygiene regulations. Like, what's up with that stuff? What's up with that? But we saw that in a deeper way, it's a picture of being separate from the world spiritually. God's people were to behave differently. They were to be separate from the world. This set them apart uniquely as God's own. And so all these health regulations, which make good common sense, certainly were beyond that in another layer, a picture of living a separate life, which others around them would see and say, you're a little bit different. You're a little weird. Hmm? Yeah, that's right. Okay, nothing wrong with that. 
In the New Testament, it is people who are set apart. Holy, sanctified. We'll come back to that. People are set apart and separated from sin, separated unto God. Hold on to that thought. So the Westminster Catechism, if you're into a little more formal stuff, says this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God being able to die to sin and live to righteousness. I really like that. That is just jam-packed with stuff. We're being made new from the inside out into the image of God as we die to sin and live to righteousness. W.N. Clark said it's the Christianizing of the Christian. And so me, being a rather simple guy, would say it's becoming like Jesus. Sanctification, holiness, is becoming more like Jesus. It's a process of becoming more like Jesus. Now, there are distinctions when it comes to sanctification. And I'm going to take a break in just a minute unless you ask some questions because I'm throwing some really seminary-level stuff at you. Okay, Some of you is going to go, others are going to be like, ooh. But try to mine out. Keep up, right? Keep up. Let God's Spirit speak, right? Here we go. Here's some distinctions. Sanctification is a dual process. It's a dual process process so if we're going to be set apart if we're going to be made separate it's a dual process what am i talking about here's the first part we are separated from sin if we're going to be sanctified we have to be separated from sin now when i came to jesus in my 20s out of the business world i began immediately to notice they don't live like i do back in my day right in the 70s when i came to jesus a long long time ago we began the process of become separated from sin so I adapted, began to adapt myself to the church culture. What does the evangelical church culture say in the 70s? You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't play cards, you don't go to movies. Right? I'm thinking, oh, this is fun. This is really fun. I'm separating from sin like everything good in life, right? This is really weird. Really weird. But understand, sanctification is not happening from the outside in. It can't. And so what the church has done is developed a whole bunch of cultural Christians who have adapted a different code of conduct from the world, but on the inside, we're lost. Because we're not understanding the second part of the process. We're separated from sin. Yes, the Christian must live differently. Come out from among them, the scriptures say. Come out from among them. Live differently. Live according to the word of God. But we have to separate ourselves totally unto God. And unfortunately, the church has done a pretty good job saying, okay, don't do this, don't do that, don't speak like that, don't have those thoughts, don't, 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 don't. don't. We might as well live under the law if if that's all we're going to do because that's all that is. But we must then separate ourselves fully under the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And this is where a lot of Christians and a lot of marriages and a lot of homes fail because we're separating ourselves like that. We take on ourselves the code of conduct of cultural Christianity without understanding the power of the fullness Of the Holy Spirit. Am I making sense? I hope so. (laughs) Okay. Sanctification has a dual purpose. It has a dual purpose. If we're going to step into a sanctified, a separate life, there's power for holy living. Power for holy living. Paul would write, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Remember, he just told us there's war going on inside us. Bang, 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 bang. But if we're living under the power of the Holy Spirit, we won't then do what our sinful nature is constantly dragging us into. There is freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Then there's power for effective service. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. So I put in there this chart, which I developed over the years because it just gives me a lot of understanding of how this whole thing works, right? Power for holy living, power for effective service. So if we track the left-hand side, when the Holy Spirit is truly in control of our lives, we receive power. I put in there for serving. The evidence that we are filled with the Spirit is we will have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. On the right-hand side of that chart, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us with power, we'll have power for holy living. The evidence that we are enjoying the fullness of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? All that stuff should be a growing part of our life. The essence, though, is love. Am I more loving today than I was yesterday, this week, than last week, this year, than last year? Am I becoming more like Jesus? That's the question. Okay? So, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that there's evidences that, in fact, God is in control of our lives. Okay? Oh, I think I'll stop here just for a moment and let you ask a question or two. Bob? Nice and loud, please. Pastor John, sir, is yep. qualified to measure the evidence of the filling of the Spirit? Uh, how can we measure the evidence of the Spirit? Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, is it subjective? Yes. I suggest, Bob, you get those people around you closest to you and ask, am I more like Jesus? This month than I was last, this year than last year, this decade than last decade. And I think God will show us those areas in which, yeah, there's a struggle that continues. We're all in process, as we'll see in a moment. But how do we gauge if we're making progress? Because I think the church's standards have been faulty. And we're, we're so accepting, okay, you don't do that anymore. Oh, good, good. You stop looking at porn online good for you that's a good thing i'm not downplaying that at all but if that's the measure of what the spirit's fullness in us we're missing the point we're not just dropping some habits and saying well i don't do that anymore i must be a good christian Ah, we're missing the point here are we operating the fullness of the holy spirit can others see jesus in us am i becoming more like jesus you know what he's like it's all right there in the Bible. I want to be more like Jesus. How about you? It's a good question. Another question. I want to make sure you guys get this stuff. It's very, very important. It's bedrock to what we believe around here. Okay? Is that during the headlights look like, uh, I don't get this. Or, uh, Mm, this is really boring. Or is it like, I'm processing right now. I'm taking it that way. Okay. Sandoval. So, I'm a very black and white people guy. Me too. Good. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Nice segue. We're going to continue. Thank you. (laughs) Sanctification has a dual status in your notes. I'm going to get real practical with this in just a second. Hold on. Okay. Sanctification has a dual status. 
already not yet. Much of uh, our walk with Jesus is already not yet. Let me give you an example. Jesus said, the kingdom is coming. He said, first words in red in the Gospel of Mark, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But then he turned right around and said, the kingdom is here, it's within you. It's the already not yet principle of Scripture. Much of the Bible is already not yet. We see it in seed form. It's coming. It's coming. It's growing. It's going to happen. Same is true of this issue then of sanctification. Sanctification. Uh, Positionally, that is our official status. Thank you, Bill. Our official status before God is we are all saints. We're holy. Really? Really? So do you put that in front of your name? Is that like St. Tom sitting there? St. Tom? St. Zach? Should we start using that title? I don't know. Here's what Paul said. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Past tense. Eris. Past tense. You were made holy. You are holy. You were made right with God. Positionally, because what Jesus has done on the cross, God sees you as holy. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You're following Jesus. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're holy because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, conditionally, that's how things really are. That's the real world. We're still kind of worldly. So, uh, get this. Uh, I just love this contrast. You know, first thing, Corinthians, you look at the greeting that Paul says, uh, to the saints, to the holy ones in Corinth, right? And then he turns right around, blast them. Look what, listen to what he says. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Saints, holy ones, (laughs) you are jealous of each other, one another, and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're still controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like the people of the world? Saints, holy ones, sanctified, what's going on here? This is the already not yet. Right? Because of their faith in Jesus, uh, they now were seen by God as holy, but conditionally not quite there yet. Not quite arrived. Just like me. Just like me. So the idea is, let's close the gap between our position in Christ and our actual condition. Let's narrow this gap so that we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling, of what Jesus has done for us. Let's narrow the gap between our position as holy ones and our actual condition of being worldly. How do we do this? Oh, great question. So let's look at some Christian Missionary Alliance distinctions. Here's our statement of faith. This is, might be very boring to you. It's okay. It's the will of God that each believer should be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified, set apart, separated completely or wholly. Every part of our being. Mind, body, spirit. Being separated from sin in the world, fully dedicated to the will of God. That's that dual process. Thereby receiving power for holy living, power for effective service. We just talked about that. This is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. That last one is what we're going to finish with. This is both a crisis and a progressive experience wrought in the life of the believer subsequent to conversion. What does that mean? 
huh? It's a crisis and a progressive experience. Rot. What does rot mean? Rot. Who uses that word? Rot. In the life of the believer, subsequent or after conversion. So what does this mean? Let's unpack it. It says a crisis is important. Now, the word crisis simply means a decisive turning point. The word crisis means a decisive turning point. And in the church jargon, we would say, you know Jesus as your Savior, but now you have to live for him as your Lord. There's a vast difference between a multitude of people who have prayed and asked Jesus into my heart somewhere, as opposed to those who are really living sold out for Jesus, knowing him as Savior, knowing him as Lord. It's a false dichotomy that we in the church have foisted upon American Christians. It troubles me, it disturbs me, because the Bible says they're both the same. So in the CNMA, uh, we say this. There is this crisis. There's a decisive turning point. You come to a fork in the road. Which way am I going to go? If I go this way, it's selfish and it's all about me. If I go this way, I'm following God and his plan for my life. Which way will I go? So go along life. Boom, and I hit a crisis experience. It's a decisive turning point. I would say in my life there's been uh, maybe about a half dozen ultimate crisis experiences in my life in which I came to that fork in the road. Like, for example, in the business world, do I stay in the business world making lots of money and give lots of money to, to God's work, or do I go into the ministry? Oh, the wrestling, the agonizing, my wife, me, what? What do we do? God, where are you? I want to follow you. I want to be in the center of your will. So we sold all that we had. Uh, going overseas, again, uh, a point in which we had to sell everything we have, leave our children here, our grandchildren here, and go serve God overseas. Just agonizing, gut-wrenching decisions, crisis experience. Yeah, maybe a half dozen. Now, there's all kinds of little ones. Boy, they're happening all the time, right? Or I've got to make a decision. Am I going to do it God's way? Am I going to do it my way? But there's a decisive turning point. The result is, if I choose God's way, there's going to be full, total, complete surrender. There's going to be surrender to what God wants for my life. Now, some words that, that are used in here that we might want to define, separation. Separation means to die to self. If we're going to be separate, we have to die to ourselves. Here's the way Jesus put it. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Ha! That's very basic, isn't it? If you want to follow me, give up your own way. If you don't want to, forget it. I'm withdrawing the offer. No deal. This is where we enter into following Jesus. And I don't think as a church we've done such a hot job of reminding people what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you've got to give up your own way. This is where we begin. Take up your cross, which is a symbol of death, and come after me. But you've got to die to yourself. You've got to be separate. Separate. And then dedication. That means fully sold out to God. Here's what Paul said. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the way, truly the way to worship him. Now, understand, Paul's writing this to the Roman Christians. He's writing this to Christians. I want you to fully surrender to God, which means they hadn't, which means they were following Jesus, but they weren't fully sold out to him. So he says, I urge you, therefore, brother, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, set to God, right? That's what he's saying here. He's writing to Christians, you've got to lay it all down. You've got to quit playing with it. It's all or nothing. In or out. Follow me. 
with all of your heart, with all your passion, with all your desire. Follow me. Follow me. It's written to Christians. We talk about habitation. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Boy, that's true. Instead, be filled with a spirit. In the original language, this is a present active imperative, which means it's a continual process, never-ending. And it's an imperative, which means it's a command, it's an appeal to the will. I'm not asking you. I don't want you to think about this or pray about this. I just want you to obey is what God is saying. Be filled with the Spirit continually, continually. And that's where the power comes from. We're walking with Him moment by moment. Okay. Let's pause for another question break, another Q&A session, all right? Because now we're going to apply it. Now we're going to put some feet to this thing. Sandoval, are you still with me? Still awake? Jocelyn, give him on the tape. Good. You're with me. Question. This is the theological framework, right? I've thrown a lot at you. I get that. I get that. Question? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you got one, just raise your hand. Okay. Stop me. I can tell you this. When I made Jesus the Lord of my life and I surrendered to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, it was revolutionary. I came to Jesus in my 20s out of the business world. Immediately, uh, Cindy and I, we began, our lives began to change, right? Stopped doing this, stopped doing that, but took on the church culture, started going to church, started going to Sunday school, what? Started going to Wednesday night, what? Right? And... and adapting to the Christian culture. It's all good. It's all good. Oh, growing, growing, growing. Yeah, but I was growing up here. I was growing up here. Started getting a lot of knowledge of the Word of God. Just soaked my brain in the Bible. Right? But I'm looking around saying, uh, I don't have the joy that they have. I don't have the peace that they have. And when they worship God, there's an intensity there. I don't know what's happening here. But I'm not like them. I've asked Jesus uh, to, to take control of my life. But my life is not like that. There's just not... uh, What's wrong with me? And then I began to understand the teaching of the fullness of the Spirit of God. And in fact, it was at a missions conference when God broke me and I came forward. Yes, it was an altar call. (gasps) But it was just... It was a crisis moment for me spiritually. I can guarantee you when I asked God to fill me with the Holy Spirit and when I surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, there was a far more dramatic change in my life in the next couple of months than there was in the previous year when I asked Jesus into my heart. My life began to change, boom, 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 boom. And I was doing it with such joy and the intensity, the passion. That wasn't there when I was just living for Jesus as my Savior and doing the church thing. Huh. Huh. So I ask you, how did you receive Jesus? For me, when I received Jesus, there was no immediate emotional response. None. Zero. Zippo. Nada. No tears. No nothing. No hallelujah. Yeah, but there wasn't. (laughs) I was just like, what did I just do? Okay, that wasn't emotional at all. None of us come to Jesus because of an emotional 
experience. We come to Jesus because of faith. Paul says it very clearly. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not an emotional experience. Now, understand an emotional experience or something dramatic may have happened to put us in a place where we now acknowledge, I can't do this anymore. God, take control. God, come into my life. And we might have been brought to that point by an emotional experience, but it's faith that brings us to God. Careful, careful. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is not given to us for some mind-blowing ecstatic experience, but that we might live a holy life, a separate life, and be effective in serving the kingdom of God. That's why we are filled with the Spirit. Whether or not we have an emotional or an experiential experience is not the issue. Obeying the command to be filled is the issue. Are we filled with the Spirit? Let's dig deeper. From Scripture, from personal experience, from my own observations, few have ever been filled with the Holy Spirit without having gone through oftentimes a long stretch of deep distress or this intense inner turmoil of the soul in which we understand, God, I need more of you. I need less of me. Oh, God, help me. Help me. And that's exactly what my experience was. Living as a believer, a Jesus follower, but knowing there's so much more that you have for me, God. There's so much more. Before there can be fullness, there must be an emptiness. Before God can fill us with himself, we must be emptied first of ourselves. Give up your own way. It's the first words Jesus said. Give up your own way. You want to follow me. This emptying often brings to the forefront uh, this really ugly process, often painful process of facing our own sin and actually dying to ourselves and what we want and asking God to be everything in our lives. But is that not the Jesus way? The cross comes before the crown. Death comes before life. It is the way of the kingdom of God. This is what the crisis experiences, the decisive turning point is all about. The filling of the Holy Spirit is received by faith and only by faith. Not to give us an experience, but a new way to live. Neither in the Old Testament or in the New or in the writings of the saints, as far as I have read over my years, was any believer ever filled with the Holy Spirit who did not know that he or she was filled with the Spirit. Did you hear what I just said? When you are filled with the Spirit of God, you're going to know it. You're going to know it. It's not like, oh, I'm just just having a really good day. I'm feeling good. I'm looking good. Ah, This is great. Life is fun. You know, an up day. Woo-hoo-hoo. They happen like every 20 years. But anyway, it's really good, right? I'm not talking about that kind of experience. I'm talking about knowing that the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives. And the way I'm responding, the way I'm acting, the way I'm thinking is all, not me. It's not me anymore. It's Jesus in me. Wow, this is kind of an amazing process. Neither was anyone filled who did not know when he or she was filled. It's not like you wake up and say, oh, gee, I feel like I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And then life hits you right in the face, and all of a sudden, I don't feel so full of the Holy Spirit anymore. (laughs) Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. We're going to know that we know, because that's 
the dramatic change that happens. The issue is not how much of the Holy Spirit do we have, but how much does the Holy Spirit have of us? You see, the Holy Spirit's a person. You don't say, oh, I'm half full. Well, what half? Do I have like this arm and this leg? Which half of the Holy Spirit do I have? No, he's a person. He comes to us through faith in Jesus when we begin to follow him. So it's not getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's rather surrendering ourselves to the fullness of the Spirit. Oh, he's such a sensitive guy, the Holy Spirit. He's so sensitive. He often moves in a still, small voice, in a gentle whisper. And if we continue to wrestle and continue to choose the path of the sin nature, the Bible says we grieve him, we quench him. He's going to go off. He's still in us, but he's going to back off. He is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself upon us. But he comes by invitation, and he says, Spirit of God, fill me. Fill me. He's not going to overpower me or you. He is going to respond to a prayer of faith saying, I need you. I need you. And I need less of me. Spirit of God, come into my life. It would be spiritually dangerous for me to teach that someone has been filled with the Spirit unless there is clear evidence in their lives. We better be producing fruit, more loving, more in love with God, more loving of others, Right? That's the two biggies right there. Right? Love God, love others. Pretty simple. We're going to know that we know. However, it would be equally dangerous for me to teach or demand a specific manifestation as evidence of the Spirit's filling. There is no one sign of receiving the Spirit's fullness given in Scripture. And my Pentecostal brothers and I, we wrestle with this and we hug afterwards and we say, okay. If you're filled with the Spirit, you've got to speak in tongues. I'm like, okay. Let's look in the Bible. What does that really say? I'll look in the book of Acts. Okay. I'll look in the book of Acts with you. At the five times tongues mentioned. And all the multitude of people where it's never mentioned. And what it really means. And so, I love having that conversation. But I can assure you there's no one specific manifestation that is a sign that we are filled with the Spirit, except that we're going to be more like Jesus. It's not Jesus plus baptism, as my Christian church brothers would say. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues, which some of my Pentecostal brothers would say. None of that. It's just Jesus. Let him be as unique with you as you with everybody else. Don't put your experience on anybody else. God is unique. You're unique. He's going to work in each of our lives differently. So to say there's got to be one sign, one specific thing, that you know the Holy Spirit's filled you, forget it. Forget it. But you'll know that you know. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is so much more than an event. I'm going to go, and I'm going to ask for prayer, and be filled with the Spirit. Okay. How does that, long does that last? But being filled with the Spirit is a lifestyle. It's a continual process of growth. So we have this crisis experience followed by the progressive growth in Jesus. We have another crisis experience followed by a progressive growth in Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. To be filled with the Spirit is to live in the very presence of the Lord Jesus as if he were with us moment by moment. Is he with us moment by moment? He sure is. Absolutely he is. To be filled with the Spirit causes the hunger after God's word because we want our thoughts to be his thoughts. No, the other way around. We want his thoughts to be our thoughts, right? 
and immersing ourselves in the Word of God says, ooh, I got to... I got some things to get right here. Now, we can call it filling, baptism, total surrender, yielding. I don't care what semantical game you want to play with me. Being filled with the Spirit is God's will for every follower of Jesus to be set apart, to know Jesus as our sanctifier, is the will of God for all of us. Now, God never commands us to do anything that he doesn't provide the means to do it. So if God commands us to be filled with the Spirit, he's going to do it. He's the one that said do it. So if we say, yes, I'll do it, of course he's going to do it. He asked us to do it, right? Gee, it kind of makes sense to me. And if God commands something of us as followers, we don't need to pray about, oh, gee, let me think, let me think about this. I've got to pray about it if I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. Forget it. He said do it. Just do it. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? So it's God's command to be filled with the Spirit, to be set apart, to know Jesus there is sanctified. So rather than beg or plead, we simply claim it. It's something that he wants for us. All of his followers. We don't have to make this rocket science. Do you sincerely desire to be controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Do you sincerely desire that for your life, for your marriage, for your parenting, for your home, for this church? Do you desire that? That's the question. That's the question. Right? So, Sandoval says, well, how do you do that? How do you do that? I'm just about done. Hold on. Hold on. First of all, we must desire to live a life that will be pleasing to the Lord. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. If we are hungry and thirsting after God, He will fill us. He'll fill us up. Okay? We must desire that. We must be willing to surrender our life totally and unconditionally to our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have a new life. He's writing this to Christians. Give yourself completely to God. And I have a sneaking suspicion there are people in this room who are Jesus followers who have never given yourself completely to God. I was one of them. Now there's certain areas that he's constantly working on in my life. Right? But I believe there's people in this room right now who have never given yourself completely to God. Hmm. We must confess every sin that the Holy Spirit reveals. When the Holy Spirit reveals a sin, he puts his finger right on it. We're not dealing with the garbage voice of the enemy that says, Oh, you're no good, you're fake, you're a hypocrite, you're never going to amount to anything. Nah, 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 nah. All the negative junk that the enemy's constantly throwing at us, the lies and deceptions. But the Holy Spirit puts his finger right on it. You know what? We got this little problem with this action, this attitude, this thought. Boom. He puts his finger right on it specifically. Ba, ba, boom, ba, ba. And we need to confess those. Where confess simply means to agree. We agree with God. This is wrong. Help me, Lord. And he's promised to do that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness so that we might be filled with all righteousness. Okay? And lastly, we must receive... We must receive the gift. If you know how to give good gifts, Jesus said to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He wants us filled with his spirit. Jesus, our sanctifier. God's commanded us to be filled again and again and again and again. 
and again and again, day by day, moment by moment, to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we have these crisis moments. We progress in our growth in Jesus. But in that process, we are filled again and again with the Spirit, simply asking, God, fill me with your Spirit. That means i got to have a lot less of John and a lot more of you. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. 